Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Billboard Chartbeat Podcast, Gary Trust, Billboard Senior Director of Charts. And hey guys, it's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. This is where we talk about why what's on the charts is on the charts, uh, our second episode in our new Times Square soundproof studio. We are talking last week about our new offices here in Times Square. Most importantly, we started talking about the men's room and the paper towels, which are automated in the men's room and how it's, it's a good thing, but it's taking some getting used to. There, there's a flip side to that, Trevor. What's the problem with the paper towels in the bathroom? Uh, the water in our old building. See, it was the reverse. Oh, uh, uh, y'all, y'all, y'all. This is about to be the most privileged thing you ever heard in your life. Get ready. I know it's coming. This is going to be just prepare. The, the water. So the, the paper towels in our old building, you manually pulled out, and now they're automated. You just wave your hand. Nice and easy. So that's great. 2003, great year, right? Uh, but now the water in our old building... You hit a button and it just it just went on for thirty seconds or so and automatically went off. Okay, first of all, that's generous. Thirty. It was more like maybe fifteen. All right. But in the new building, you turn the handle and the water goes on. So I've been turning the water on and I'm just about to leave, and I realized, oh, the water's still running. That's weird. I realized you have to turn it manually. And I'm not the only person. First of all, it wasn't me. And can you? I mean, imagine Gary in the morning at his house, like he had to turn the faucet on and like nearly forgot about it. I, I don't get I don't get how that's like so leave the shower running. I mean it's a, yeah it's like a totally different bathroom like that's it's context. You're just used to doing one particular thing at work. But like I mean the, but the dynamic of the new office, the new look, like the bathroom doesn't look the same. None of that factors into the idea that this is a different place, different situation. No, you're still standing at a sink washing your hands at work. I guess that's how I I don't I, I I don't I I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I mean, the countertop is different. The sink is different. Right. Like, every, I mean, like, so, so the whole surrounding environment's different, and somehow that 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 doesn't sort of you know cause a part of your brain to say, ah, yes, like the, the handle is different too. Well, as you said a minute ago, that's the biggest problem. It's, it's not that bad a problem. I mean, yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, enough about bathroom sinks. We are gonna dive into. So much. If you were here with us last week, um, we had a great chat about the R. Kelly documentary that aired on Lifetime, Surviving R. Kelly, which you can still, by the way, check out on the Lifetime app if you have a cable subscription. So be sure to 
Uh, check that out if you have not. So we were talking last week about the documentary, six hours. They spread it over the course of three days. And really, by the end of it, I mean, it was trending all over social media. A lot of opinions and takes. Um, several celebrities also weighed in. And we were here with three friends of ours to discuss the documentary and its impact. We were here with uh, Gail Mitchell, Billboard's R&B senior correspondent. And from our sister site, Vibe.com, we were with Shaniqua Golding. And on t- what? All the guests oh. were great last week. We got some of the best feedback ever. She was great. You can just tell by, I mean, I hope you can hear the smile in Gary's voice. Gary, yeah. all, let me tell you, all week after Gary, Gary loved that. He thought Shaniqua, I mean, she might just debut at number one on Gary's podcast guest chart. Yeah. This was, you know, yeah. Well, you, you got a, a tweet. It was uh, Shaniqua for President 2020. Yes, yeah, somebody did did call that out, um, really emphasized she had uh, gutsy truth to power. So shout out to Shaniqua. Um Hopefully she's out there listening to this one. But, yeah, I mean, people were really, really, really impressed. Just really honest, said things that that really needed to be said. And also on top of that, we were talking uh, about the wider picture of what's the future of R. Kelly. And one of the big things, of course, a lot of people are talking about is what to do with his music catalog. And as part of that, we also had on Keith Solis on, the music director at KRB. Hey, it's R&B. In Dallas, Texas, which was one of the first stations to publicly declare that they were not going to play R. Kelly's music. You know, some stations kind of eased off it in the background, but this was a station who came out and declared we are not going to play it, and we talked with him about uh, what went into that decision, something that the station had never done before, and really what felt like a, you know, a, a movement or a call to uh, prevent R. Kelly from being on the airwaves. So that uh, was maybe going to be the extent of the conversation. It was a great conversation we had last week. It was really the entire podcast. But uh, in doing research about this, well, Trevor, you wound up uh, digging a little bit deeper. So we've got part two with the people behind the documentary this week. Uh, Yeah, we got to give a huge shout out to Joanna Zwickle, who uh, works here with us uh, with Media Rights Capital, which is one of our other sister companies, in organizing uh, this chat. I mean, you want to talk about connections. This happens so, so quickly. And she was able to link us up with uh, Bree Miranda Bryant, who is the SVP of Unscripted Development and Programming at Lifetime, and two of the executive producers on the Surviving R. Kelly documentary, Jesse Daniels and Tamara Simmons. Uh, just how us all came together. Jesse and Tamara brought the project to Bree and Lifetime. They teamed up uh, with Dream Hampton, who was a big force in making this all come together as well. And they really oversaw and crafted this documentary. So really speaking with the people who were on the ground from day one, just, uh, I mean, so much. It it started out really as just something that was going to be pretty short, you know, maybe a 60 to 90 minute documentary, just about two or three people. And we'll get into this a little later, but we'll talk about how it went from just two or three individuals to more than 50 people willing to participate and how it went from maybe just a 60 minute short to six hours. So... All that coming up uh, on the Chartbeat Podcast later on. Yeah, so last week we didn't really uh, talk too much chart info. Uh, Been a lot happening the last couple weeks, so let's do that first. Then we'll get to those interviews uh, coming up. But uh, first, the Billboard Hot 100 this week. Song goes back to number one. And then I got you off your knees, put you right back on your feet, just so you can take advantage of me. Tell me how it feels sitting up there, feeling so high, but you far away to hold me. All right, it took a one-week sabbatical from the top, but Halsey's Without Me is once again number one on the Billboard Hot 100. 
really helping the song get back to number one, there was a vertical video, which is, you know, all the rage as we all have our smartphones now. And it's funny because, you know, for a minute there, everyone was like horizontal video when you record anything. And now that everybody has a smartphone, there's like a there's like a big push and acceptance of vertical videos now. Why isn't it just everyone making vertical videos? You probably need to talk to like a director, cinematographer, but I'm sure, you know, shooting vertical, that narrow, I mean, that's got to change the whole, I don't know, landscape conception of of how you can shoot a video. You can't show nearly as much, you know, vertical than you could like on a horizontal screen. And and I guess people maybe think that, you know, turning the screen isn't that hard. Obviously, you know, YouTube views are still through the roof, so... There's still something yeah. about a vertical video that feels kind of like you're getting something very raw and off the cuff, kind of like you're uh, being brought into a little secret circle by seeing something that looks not quite official. So maybe that draw is still kind of there. Maybe. And I, I mean, for, I don't know. For me, like, I, I guess it sounds kind of dumb, but I don't think it's that big a deal. And also, I don't know if there's like a video that I have to watch vertical, like, then I'm going to really spend four minutes on my phone like looking at this video. I mean, if I'm listening to music on my phone, nine times out of ten, it's because I'm in transit, I'm mobile, I'm walking around or something, so I'm not really going to be tied to a video. But, you know, I'm sure I'm sure people obviously are thinking about that more and more often. And even Halsey, you know, we there is an official video, which is sort of filmed the traditional way, but this is just a, a new wrinkle for uh, some new fans. Honey, bands in my pocket, it's on me. Honey, deep when I roll like the army. Get more bottles, these bottles are lonely It's a moment when I show up, got I'm saying wow Honey, bands in my pocket, it's on me Yeah, your grandma will probably know me Get more bottles, these bottles are lonely It's a moment when I show up, got I'm saying wow So fans of Post Malone may be lamenting a little bit that Sunflower, the collaboration with Sway Lee from Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, falls to number two after only one week, but at least we can have a little consolation prize for... Uh, I don't, I don't know. What, what do you call post fans? Po- the post toasties, the the poster boys, the poster people, the post office, the post office. OK, <laughs> the post office uh, w- w- mail will be up 75 percent after this. Let's go, Gary. Uh, yeah, the post office, though, can at least enjoy that. Post Malone has a new top 10 on the Hot 100. The song Wow, which he released on Christmas Eve. Hits the top 10, uh, jumps 11 to number 9 this week. So Post is racking them up in the past couple years. It really just goes to show how he really is one of the A-list talents of the past 24 months. So uh, back into the top 5 of the Hot 100. Thank You Next by Ariana Grande, former 7-week number 1. Talking about that song because uh, even though it's now been out for a bit, goes to number 1 this week on the Pop Songs Radio Airplay chart. It's Ariana Grande's 5th number 1 on Pop Songs. It's her 3rd since July, after No Tears Left to Cry and God is a Woman. Breakfast at Tiffany's and bottles of bubbles Girls with tattoos who like getting in trouble Lashes and diamonds, ATM machines Buy myself all of my favorite things Been through some bad shit, I should be a Alright, and to that point, there's actually another Ariana Grande song out there that will be coming up the pop chart soon. Seven Rings is the title. Came out last Friday, and as with most, as basically with anything Ariana Grande at this point, it just was you know instantly record breaking. Broke the Spotify record for twenty four hour plays. So within its first day, had almost fifteen million plays around the world. So people crazy about that song. Number one on U.S. Spotify pretty easily at this point. Well, it's interesting because this song is, I guess for me probably the least poppy of of the bunch, just because of the way it's. 
And there's been a lot of controversy around the song, and maybe that's in a way helped some of its radio airplay for people to listen and stream it and, and try it out. Because um, the Princess Nokia tweet, if you saw, where she basically accused her straight up of copying her song. A lot of people pointing out that both of those songs kind of have the same flow as Pretty Boy Swag. But to me, I don't know, it's like the least poppy of the song. So it's interesting that pop radio sort of, I guess, jumped on it maybe as, as crazy as they did. I thought that one might take a little more time to grow, but maybe not. You do know what it borrows the melody of, right? You're talking about all these other things. You're kind of burying the lead here. Oh, is that is that is that the lead in in fifty years after the movie came out? Yeah, I would think so. Okay, all right. Well, obviously, she basically obviously. remade my favorite things. That's the lead to me. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. I got oh. like if she remade the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and then there was a little rap at the end. You'd be focusing on that. Oh, I mean, yeah. Okay, sure, sure, sure. All right, maybe I downplayed it. My favorite things from The Sound of Music is uh, really, yeah, the backbone of this song. I mean, it's from, from the opening notes. It's kind of, a, I guess it's maybe a trap version of it, if you want to call it that. It kind of flips it on its head, makes it a little more minor and key. But uh, Ariana Grande, you know, we know she's a big fan of musicals and, and classic actresses, Judy Garland and the like. So no surprise that she would take a song like this and try to sort of flip it on its head and update it for the 2019 version. So what's weird to me is that My Favorite Things has kind of become a Christmas hit. I know it's not specifically a Christmas song. You got to explain this. To me. You got to explain this one because I, 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 I don't hear this song on Christmas like at all. Oh, yeah. No, it gets uh, holiday airplay on, on AC stations. And you know, the, the lyrics about uh, favorite things, like you're getting presents and the sound of music, it just kind of has become that gets aired during, during the holidays. It's, it's kind of all sort of been adopted for the holidays. It has. I've heard it. Uh, oh, I've heard okay. It. And, okay. But that, that's kind of strange. And at the same time, you said uh, released uh, Christmas, uh, right around Christmas. Wow. Uh, the video by Post Malone, that's Christmas themed. Yeah. I mean, that came out on Christmas Eve. So I guess maybe they were trying to make a nice package play right then just for a big Christmas surprise. A lot of people get gift cards and those kind of things. So, But it's kind of funny. That now, front of mind. Right, but now that we're in well past the holidays, a few weeks past, we've got a, a video a song goes to the top 10 as a, a, a very Christmas themed video. And now the new Ariana Grande song comes out, could be number one next week. That is a whole Christmas history as well. So just when we thought we we're past the holidays, musically, kind of right back in them. And something about rap songs, too. And some and something about, yes, trap and uh, Soldier Boy flow. And yeah, that, that could play a part, you know, a little bit. The video, a lot of people are saying it's very K pop ish. Kind of two change trap house style. Um, it's it's interesting, you know. This 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 has kind of generated some some heat for her in terms of not just intensity, but also you know under fire for what some people are are saying. She's uh dare I say the a word appropriating. We'll see how it plays out in the uh, grand scheme of things. Now we really want to turn to the main focus of today's episode and really something much more serious. Uh, as we mentioned, we're going to bring in uh, two of the producers of the surviving R. Kelly documentary, along with the SVP of Unscripted Development and Programming at Lifetime, Bree Miranda Bryant. And really, we are interested in getting the perspective of how this documentary came together and how they're reacting to just the huge response, record-setting ratings for Lifetime. Uh, As we mentioned, huge social media reaction, so many celebrities you know, everybody from, from Jada Pinkett and people who are around sort of R. Kelly's heyday to 
many of the current R&B stars who you would have to say musically sort of owe a debt to R. Kelly, but a lot of them, even though they're, they're in that vein and from that cut, not just, you know, blindly paying homage to, to someone who was the king of R&B. A lot of them really, you know, saying fuck him. And at the same time, all this work that Lifetime did, now uh, they put that out and they get allegations denied by R. Kelly. So we're going to talk about that too, how it feels to put out uh, all this work, all these hours of production, all these interviews, and then I'm sure as they expected to hear someone say, nope, none of it's true. Yeah, so so much to get to really to try and unpack the creation, the process, and the response to this. So uh, without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to bring in Jesse Daniels and Tamara Simmons, who were two of the executive producers on Surviving R. Kelly, along with, as mentioned, Bree Miranda Bryant, the SVP of Unscripted Development and Programming at Lifetime. So here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thank you all so much for coming on the Billboard Sharpie podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. I guess the, the first question, we'll just start at the beginning. What was the original impetus for this series and, and why now when there's been, uh, there's been talk about the allegations against our Kelly rumors, uh, so much talk for, for so long, uh, time frame. Why was it now and, and how did it get started? Yeah, sure. So you're right. The, the allegations and rumors for, for decades now. Um, and, but in particular in around summer, early summer, 2017, uh, we actually noticed that there were some new articles coming up detailing news stories of alleged victims who had come forward. And around that time, we saw um, the Me Too movement uh, take off. And so what Tamara and I did after we saw the first article come out is we did some digging and, and certainly read all the articles that had dated back 30 years or so. And one conversation that we had had was why isn't the Me Too movement receiving um, these victims maybe the same way as, as other uh, victims who have been coming forward? And so Tamara and I wanted to get in touch uh, with, uh, with some of the certain new survivors who had come forward. And so we slowly kind of worked our way and, and got introduced to one and another and learned their story, heard, heard everything that they had, they had been through, and kind of started putting puzzle pieces together um, and realized just that we had something really important to tell here. And so when it came to this series, from what I read, um, and I think Bree has mentioned this before, it originally was supposed to be, or at least the, the conception was maybe a 60 to 90 minute sort of 
you know, one-stop shop documentary. And how did it evolve from from that into what is nearly, you know, six hours over three nights? What was that like for you all when you just found more and more that made it just, you know, much more that you had to tell? Um, well, when when Jesse and Tamarin team came to me with the pitch, they, they had about two or three survivors and two sets of parents. And I think, you know, some of those survivors, everyone sort of had cold feet, you know, because you're really trusting someone with a story that um, kind of was told many times in the last couple of decades, but um, kind of fell in deaf ears. So I got to work on the research part, and we all sort of came together, and it made sense to go back to the very beginning and sort of make this a timeline doc. And once we did that, you know, we still didn't know. Is it is it still going to, you know, we didn't know how many hours it was going to be until we were we were done with it. Yeah, I echo what Bree's saying. There are so many people who have watched the story now, uh, watched the documentary now, said, oh, my gosh, I can't forget. I, I had no idea that happened back in the 90s. And so what we, part of our intention of doing this timeline, part of our discussion was that in order to understand what the newer um, survivors are going through, what the parents are going through now, you have to understand the patterns that have been in place uh, that date back, you know, 30 years. And so I know Sparkle um, had come out and said, uh, Sparkle, for those who don't know, is one of the participants in the documentary. She was a singer, or she is a singer, rather, I should say, who worked with R. Kelly um, very prominently in the 90s, had um, a couple chart hits with him. So she's very much uh, involved in that camp, she had mentioned that she had sat for about three, four, five hours just by herself um, telling her story and uh, relating what happened in her experiences. So for those who don't know, I just want to give them sort of a sense of scope. How much footage do you think you acquired over this time? Because I think some people think a documentary that's, you know, six hours, you probably have seven hours of footage and, you know, you you basically have the story right there. But how much really material did you have to work with and, and and how did you cut it down? That's a great question. I don't think we could ever put a, a real number to the hours that were shot, but certainly with Sparkle, we sat down for six or seven hours with a lot of people. We were, we were there for hours and hours and they were sharing their stories and it was certainly very emotional and intense. Um, and it's, and that's the hard part is, is, is cutting it down to six hours, uh, which is a long time to tell this story. But even then, you're working with so much footage and so much, uh, so many different stories you have to weave together. It was, you know, it was kind of, it was not an easy process. But that's we, we made sure we had enough room uh, in the post production process to to be able to kind of try a few different things. How emotional was it for all of you working on this project? Uh, you know, as professionals, you you know you have to get this done. But this is such. Uh, emotional content, and and obviously it's it's uh, incomparable to the to the brave women on camera. But what was it like uh, for all of you? <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> from the very beginning, it was just emotional just to hear their stories. And actually, I'm like, is this really real? And then talking to the families and then meeting some other survivors, they had similar stories. And just, I mean, every single time I heard a story, I was just surprised at every everything that I was hearing and I just couldn't believe it so after a while I just you know you, you do get emotional but you still have to be strong for them and of course they would call me at two three in the morning and 
they would say, am I, you know, am I doing the right thing coming out and things like that? And you still have to like encourage them. And I was encouraging myself and I was encouraging Jesse and Jesse was probably encouraging Bree. So it was like everyone had to keep everyone's spirits up because it, it was so heavy. And as you can see, like everyone has been saying, like this was so hard to watch. Some people can't get all the way through it. Some people are just now texting me or calling me saying, I just finished it. I couldn't watch it all. And, uh, I mean, we we lived it for, like, two years almost. So it was, it was very draining. But it was, it was very rewarding to see how supportive these women are and how brave they are. And, you know, they're getting stronger every day. Uh, I have two questions kind of based off that. One thing, um, you know, as, as the people who are making this film and, as you mentioned, you know, being s- – so heavily involved and there's so many people that are relying on you to tell this story you know these are people who have been you know exploited and 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 tricked before and i think there's a lot of times in this country especially right now there's sort of a distrust in media so how do you create an environment of trust you know that that allows these women to feel comfortable sharing these experiences that obviously must be very uh raw and very you know uncomfortable sometimes to to relive I think, and Jesse and Tamara can answer this probably better than I can, but I think, you know, from from being on set and just the approach was, was patience first because I think a lot of these, you know, women, these survivors, these participants along the way had been screaming into the wind and hadn't been heard. And I think it took a lot of patience, you know, which then it was a breeding ground for trust to let them know that, you know, they, they would be heard when they shared their story with us. So when they did sit down in that chair and do these interviews, I think there was, you know, there was that in mind. And that's why they were very long interviews. It wasn't just because we had so many questions. It was just they had so much to say. Um, and it was, a, it was a, a safe place for them to share those stories. Yeah, I agree. And then also when we partnered with Lifetime, uh, because – Jesse and I, we had to gain their trust initially, so they trusted us. And then when we partnered with Lifetime, they were very, like, they they felt like my voice really is going to be heard because it's, like, you know, a woman's network. And so they were really excited and happy about that at the same time. So I think just partnering with the right network also helped them have the confidence that they didn't have before. And one thing that uh, you mentioned before is that the scale of time that you got to know these women over so many uh, weeks and months, do you still keep in touch with with any of them after the after the filming was completed? Were you able to link any of them together yeah. who may not have known each other? Are, are those relationships? What are those like today? Yeah, well, um, as I'm interviewing now and we're talking, I'm texting one of them, so they still text every day, and we still have to encourage them every day because they do receive the negative backlash, but. They have so much support, and I just, you know, try to stay positive for them and um, keep them, like, remind them of how brave they are. Um, so I'm in contact with them every day, um, pretty much from morning until night. You actually brought up something as well that, that is interesting, which is that even though some of their stories don't cross over, that they've experienced different things at different years, today, now, they're all kind of healing together. They're all there. A lot of them have become friendly with one another and they see each other as a support system, which is something we're really proud of. 
Yeah, I just saw Kitty um, Jones. She posted a picture of her and Asante and Javante. I guess they were at a restaurant, and that was the first time that they met with each other. And the caption just read that, you know, we're sisters for life. Did you have those kind of expectations when you went into making this? That uh, It sounds like it's kind of one of those things that happens just as it all develops. And obviously you didn't think you were going to get over 50 interviews. So now, as you said, the support system, that's another benefit. I, I mean, I think this entire experience has exceeded all of our expectations. You know, every day seems like there's some, some more news breaking um, during the course of production. There was always someone new to interview um, that was coming out. So I think, you know, I think all of this has exceeded our expectations, and it's just been the largest privilege that we have been able to be a part of it. I'm curious about how uh, you said it went from you know, maybe a couple uh, participants at first to over 50. Uh, what was it like, uh, the process of uh, getting up to that many people, uh, sharing their stories? I think there were three three things, really, that, that were helpful. So the first thing was research, so just really figuring out what the timeline was. And because it's such a rabbit hole on so many fronts that you sort of fall into it, and one thing happens, and then another thing happens, and then another thing happens in terms of tracking that, um, that that sort of showed us who we needed to try and reach out to. So that's that was the first thing, was creating the timeline and understanding what it really was. The second thing, I think, is just the people. So every time... You know, these guys reached out and talked to someone and actually got them into the chair um, and spent the time with them listening to their story. At the end of, of every interview was the question, you know, is there someone else that you think would like to talk to us? Is there someone else that you think that we could know about that we should try and reach out to? And, and you know, would you be comfortable with, with sharing that information? And I think most times people came back and said, you should meet with so-and-so or, you know, I worry about so-and-so. And from there, it was more research and, and more outreach. Um, the third thing I think is just the platform that Lifetime is, is just, you know, we, it's a platform for women that's a very courageous platform. Um, so having that as a backing, I think, you know, as Tamara and Jesse said, made it easier for people to say yes. Uh, I do think that we, we probably should talk about a few people who are not in the documentary. And first and foremost, um, R. Kelly himself does not make an appearance. How many times, I assume you, you must have reached out to his camp, how many times did you try to engage with his camp? And was there any sort of breakthrough, any indication that maybe, maybe he would be willing to talk or provide anything for this? Yeah, we never came in with any sort of expectation whether or not he would want to participate and or not. But we certainly um, felt like it, we needed to at least give them him and his camp an opportunity to respond. Um, so we did that, um, and they they didn't they chose not to. Was it an active denial or was it just radio silence from them? I believe it. it we never really got a, uh, an answer from them in the end. No surprise. But there, the standard, I guess, that we all learned, right? Like when you're yeah. producing a documentary or someone's writing an article or, you know, the news is covering something, you always do the proper, you know, thing, which you have to follow legal protocol, which is reaching out to, you know, said individual or corporation and say, you know, this is what we're doing and these are the details of what we're doing 
would you would you care to respond or participate in any way? So all of those all of those things were done. And so uh, we also see, of course, John Legend is in there, uh, Wendy Williams, a few other uh, plenty of notables. Is there anybody, whether it's celebrity or or non celebrity, is there anybody in particular that you really wish had been able to participate? And what do you think that they could have at least clarified or commented on that would have helped flush the story out even more? I, I we've had we I mean we've all had this conversation. We think that everybody that was supposed to be in the dock is actually in the dock. We feel like it's complete. Um, I think the participants that are in it as well as you know other people who may not have been in it everybody has their own timing and what feels right for them to do we are so grateful that so many people have spoken out now celebrities you know regular folk who are having this conversation now is the is the stuff that's really supporting these survivors um and keeping the keeping that support and those arms wrapped around them is extremely important right now i think that brings up an important point because as is alluded to several times in the documentary itself, um, a few times even in this conversation, weirdly enough, this is a story that has been, you know, sort of whispered about, followed around for multiple decades. And now we arrive at this point with this documentary where, once again, it's very top of mind. A lot of people talking about it. Kudos to you all in for stories and situations and links that people had not seen before, even with what seemed to be so much evidence out there. How do we not let this, you know, end up being another sort of three weeks R. Kelly's top of mind and, okay, you know, somehow everything settles back to to where it is. What can ordinary people do? We've seen so many people boycott his music. We've seen people take active stands against his concerts. What more can can people do who really feel moved and energized to want to, you know, make sure this does not fall by the wayside again? Yeah, that's the big question is, is, you know, how do we keep the conversation moving forward? And it's really at this point out of our hands. And we're just proud to see that people are continuing to talk about it. Celebrities are continuing to talk about it. Um, and so really, you know, we get we've been getting messages from all kinds of people in all industries who say they've watched it. Uh, families have watched it together and people on social media are tweeting about it. Um, even memes are being made about it. And so really, it's just about continuing um, just a dialogue going forward. And if people are choosing not to play his music again because of it, if they're choosing not to go to his shows because of it, you know, that's, that's all part of the conversations that are happening. And we can only hope that that continues to happen, that people continue to make educated decisions, that they see this and, and they talk amongst one another and they, and they decide what, what, what do they want to do now? Uh, Bree, I also want to talk, and you mentioned um, a little bit about the legal questions that you obviously need to try to get a response from R. Kelly's camp, or at least inform them. When an idea like this comes to you, and you know what what legal and practical things do you have to make sure you're very much aware of when something like this happens, with so many allegations that um, you know must be said have never been never been proven per se in a court of law. Um, nothing definitive, things that are still going on to this day, at this very moment. What do you have to manage and be careful of when you do a project as intense as this? Being, being diligent about, you know, the facts that are at hand, and I think that's where the timeline actually came into play. I mean, there are a lot of boxes to check. Um, 
you know, on, on our end and also on creative end in terms of staying in line with what, what would be allowed from um, legal point of view. It's a very arduous process. <laughs> and so even, you know, you have the six hours that are officially released, you know, there's probably countless more hours um, still footage logged elsewhere. We answer so many questions about the links, the timeline, the people, the circumstances. What questions do you still have, even after such a detailed and thorough documentary? What's what's still out there that makes you wonder, you know, what you couldn't quite grasp? It's hard to kind of analyze now what questions are still out there that for us are unanswered. I feel like we, we in telling the story, we looked at... Uh, every single element that dated back years and everything from, you know, these, the stories of our survivors to his career and where those intersect. I feel like we did as thorough a process as possible um, in, in researching and putting together the doc. At the same time, conversely, when you all feel that way, what is it like to hear that uh, all these allegations R. Kelly is denying? He's refuting content that you've worked on, uh, again, for so long, so many hours, you've talked to so many people. Uh, what reaction do you have when you hear that? Everything you just put out, he's saying, not true. Well, I, I think we were all prepared for him to deny a lot of the allegations or all of them. Um, so, I mean, that's that's part of why we had to continue to encourage the survivors to just, you know, speak their truth and stand on their truth. And after all of this, you know, we, we see, as with anything R. Kelly, even the response from social media, there's plenty of people who, who are championing this work and very supportive of it. And there's still a very vocal contingent who are loyal and supportive to R. Kelly. And even in the course of the documentary, um, for those who haven't seen, there are several women, um, you know, in the, I think in the 2000s who meet R. Kelly 2010s who admit that they were fans and they had heard the rumors and they just dismiss them or didn't believe them or thought that they would be different or whatnot over the course of filming this. And, and there's also some experts, some psychologists and um, so not just direct victims, but some experts in the medical field. Do you have any sense or why people would still support R Kelly even after all of this and even after the airing of this documentary? I guess we can go to how Nelson George unpacked it in the doc, and I do think that that's true. You know, his point was so much of that music was a part of of so many people's lives, whether it was, you know, the first wedding dance or, you know, the, the song that people played at the family reunion. You know, the music is definitely a part of people's lives, and, and that may be what's difficult for people to separate you know, the music from the man. I think what uh, one of the things that the documentary does, it does attempt to try to understand some levels of how uh, some of this behavior, uh, whether it started or, or continued, and you get into issues that uh, he he was alluring as such a big star that uh, a young woman uh, could be drawn in by that. It it really goes deep into not just here's what happened, but here's here's how something, uh, something this, this uh, these awful details that come up. No, that's a that's all really good point. Which was that you know R. Kelly has has been a massive um, celebrity for for many years, and he has a 
there's something magnetic about his music. And, and so that was part of what we tried to do was try to set up that context. So you did understand when our survivors told their stories, how that first meeting or whatever that was, how, you know, why maybe they were drawn to him. And, and so it's, you know, we try to, to, to create that context so people could understand the big picture. I think maybe one of the biggest takeaways is you hear so many of these stories and a, a thread is, uh, because they were so young, a lot of a lot of the original thinking at the time was, well, uh, yeah, this behavior seems a, a little off. Uh, what R. Kelly is asking and some of these demands he's making, but well, uh, he he's older. May, maybe this is normal. I should just go along with it. And to hear so many people say that, I think one of the the biggest things uh, uh, benefits from this is that uh, this discussion is being had now, and and maybe in years past, decades past. This was never talked about, and this is a, such a key part of uh, moving forward that uh, if something doesn't seem right, people seem to be talking about it more than they would have in the past. And to, to hear everyone uh, saying those same kinds of details, uh, if nothing else, it's great that that's all coming forward and everyone can realize, uh, yeah, this if something doesn't feel right, this does need to be talked about. That's been the thing that's been so mind-blowing for all of us, that this sparks such a global conversation, um, and that you know, what, what is actually really interesting is every, all the legwork that, that the Me Too movement did and the Time's Up movement did, um, this this documentary ended up becoming a catalyst for more conversation that seemed to blur gender and race lines. Like, it's men talking about this. It's women talking about this. It's parents talking to their kids about this. And, um, you know, I think we all needed to be re-educated about sexual violence um, and how to stop it. And I think there's an unpacking, too, of the notion of shame. So it's it's very heady. Uh, how are you all different after having been through this process? What what has this taught you and uh, maybe changed in your own life? Um, well, for me, I have a daughter myself, and so it's just taught me, like, as a mother, just to make sure that we have those conversations that I didn't think about before I haven't thought about before and it's also helping to her to see it in the um you know all the hard work that she saw us doing and then she's seeing the impact now and and then she's like mom this is great so I think just it's helping me with my family to be honest I almost feel like I haven't had too much time to unpack everything that we've learned there's been a lot but I do feel like personally going through this um, experience that um, there's just so many layers um, to when you hear someone's story, uh, when you read a headline in the news, it's, there's so much more than just that. And I feel like, you know, like we've seen these victims uh, of R. Kelly's come out of various years and various times. And we're so quick to just read a headline and then rush to judgment. And I feel like for me, uh, I, you know, just it, you have to understand there's so many layers to everyone's story, especially when it comes to abuse and be getting into an abusive situation, um, that it's, you owe it to anybody who's gone through that, not to rush to judgment and to really try to listen to their story, try to understand it and put yourself in their position. And I guess for me, there's so many things. Um, I think just the message of being human and human means believing people sometimes um and sort of giving ourselves permission to do that 
um, and to treat each other with kindness, I think, is something that's just reiterated over and over again every time I rewatch a segment or the whole episode or remember these stories from the participants and the survivors. I was walking, when I was walking even to work today, um, I was reliving the part kind of at the end where um, I, I forget her name. I, uh, blanking on her name, but she, as with many, she's one of the ones who I believe was outside maybe the courthouse or, or had met R. Kelly at a concert, and he had given her his phone number. And to me, it almost felt like that scene maybe in a horror movie where, like, you know, we at a distance, of course, having watched this, you're like, no, like, that's like, that's how it, like, that's how it starts. And then, you know, why would you take his phone number? Why would you call him? And I had to stop and think to myself, like, wait, wait a minute. You know, in a horror movie, it's like the same thing. We always sit there and think, why would you take the hitchhike ride? Why would you go upstairs? Like, we never think, why does this killer keep killing people? Why does, what, what's up with that? It's always sort of shifted onto the victim of wh- why did you put yourself in, in that kind of way? And so um, that was probably the best comparison I could think of. But, but to the point about not rushing to judgment, you know, knowing that there's much more to any story, um, the circumstances that that shape the victim in particular, you know, that's something that we all need to to pause and recognize and acknowledge. And and as uh, one of you mentioned before, you know, there but by the grace of God, go, you know, any of us really. Yeah. To that point, uh, the ending I think is is really uh, poignant because there's the song by Sparkle, the new song, but also. The series ends with uh, the update of many of the victims. And why was that decision made? And what was necessary about trying to end the series on that note and really not on R. Kelly? I think just the journey of this documentary, has it, it was never about him. It was the platform for these women to tell their stories. And someone once said something like, your authenticity is your superpower, right? And you see the, you see these um, very truthful and honest accounts from these women um, through the course of the documentary. And the one piece that always stuck out to me in terms of being extremely impactful was for them to identify themselves as survivors, right? That's, that's where they were. They are, they are now at a different place where... They've stood in their truth, and they are now out of situations that they no longer want to be in. And all of that is so empowering um, and reflective of the journey. And so we wanted to, to end it with where they are now, because that's what this whole doc has, has been about. Also, just watching it is, is supportive. I mean, to your point of, like, what, do, what can people do? Um, when we put it together, the more people that were interviewed, there was a power in that, the power in numbers, and we've talked about that a lot, you know, in this journey. And then what was interesting also that we all saw was, you know, there was a gun threat at the at the screening, and I think it was December 4th, and we had to evacuate, you know, 20, 20 or 25 minutes into the documentary. And the faces of the survivors that were so heartbroken because I think they felt um, silence again, you know, that's what they had said. And, and what was interesting about that moment and powerful about that moment was there was a lot of press there. There were a lot of, you know, journalists and um, bloggers and people that were there that I don't think knew what they were going to see until they saw it. And they had only seen a piece of it. 
and they felt the need to rally around them. You know, there, there was an actual mini rally outside once we were evacuated and everyone was outside safely. And what I will say is people like like you, you know, um, Trevor and Gary and all of the journalists and the newsmakers and the people that can keep this conversation going, you know, there's power in all of those numbers. You guys are the ones that keep this story going. could be put to bed after the documentary is over, but everybody, I, I think, feels that this is a conversation that surpasses the doc, you know, a conversation about how we take care of ourselves. Um, and all of that stuff is so helpful and supportive for for the survivors of, you know, of this doc and, and many other survivors out there is to know that, you know, they can be heard. Well, I, yeah, I know it couldn't have been, uh, couldn't been easy to tell and certainly tough uh, emotional moments, but, but we thank you again for, for bringing this to an even bigger spotlight than it has. And hopefully, as you all have alluded to, this conversation doesn't stop here with just this documentary, but it keeps going. And, and most importantly, that these victims are able to, to find peace and healing. And I'm glad that they've, some of them have been able to connect with each other and, you know, the strength in numbers, of course, in that way too. So um, really for all involved, just, just, I mean, well done all around. Thank you. This has been, uh, I think I speak for all of us, one of the biggest privileges of our lives. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.